I'm Mark Murphy. I'm a chef, restaurateur, and host of a new podcast from iHeartRadio called Food 360. Join me as we take a 360-degree look at history, science, culture, and more all through the lens of food. The most important thing for me is not my writing ego. It's getting people to cook delicious food. Be sure to subscribe to Food 360 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Previously on Happy Face. Keith fell in high school. I believe it was 25 feet. When they interview killers, they have found that a large percentage of them damaged their frontal lobe before they were 22, changes their whole personality. Keith's father, Les, was a very resourceful, ingenious man, but he could be a monster. He was horrible. I hated him. Les told him, this is the way what you're going to say in court for the mobile so part. lied in court. Absolutely, he did. He dragged me to a nursing home to visit one of his hunting buddies. He said, my friend Smitty's not doing too good with his lung cancer, Keith. Talk to him, son. Nobody likes to die alone. I never feared a dead person after that. One of the few people that Keith opened up to about his childhood was psychologist Al Carlisle. So even by the age of eight, there was a lot of anger. You do me wrong, I was, I was, gonna, I was bound and determined to get even. Any learning problems? No, not really. So you're intelligent? I'm very intelligent, but I just didn't adapt myself to it. I received a letter a week before he got arrested. It said, Rose, what I did is bigger than O.J. Simpson that I'll probably be in hell forever. In the pines, Keith. In the pines, where the sun don't ever shine, I would shiver the whole night through. The subconscious mind often knows the truth long before we do. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Happy Face. I was driving in a car down the road, and this is after your dad and I were separated. Not officially divorced. Not officially divorced, but we were separated. And they had on the news that they were searching for the Green River Killer. And I go, hmm, I wonder if that's key. Why did I say that? But I think you internally know things that you don't state, you don't acknowledge. So intuitively. I, I just said it out loud, like, hmm, I wonder if that's key. And then I gasped, like, oh, why did I think that? I don't know. Because I think, I think by the time we were separated, I had so many more pieces of the puzzle, and I was starting to connect things. Because before, it was, I got a piece here, and a piece here. I think I got enough pieces that I was was beginning to connect it. Melissa also remembers having thoughts she couldn't explain. There was a time where I actually had a vision of my father behind bars. And... There's nobody I could tell to because nobody would believe me. It was when I was in seventh grade. I was walking to school and I had a, a mental image pop up in my mind of my father being behind the glass and having a telephone. And my stomach sunk and I felt 
sorrow and sadness. I just remember thinking that was a very intense emotion attached to the vision. We've gone too far. From I, The Making of a Serial Killer by Jack Olson. Dawn was coming, and pretty soon the traffic would be too heavy for me to unload her on the shoulder. I thought back to when I first met her and loved her and wanted her for all time. I needed to do one more killing and then end this murder machine for good. I put my fist against her throat for the last time. Just before she passed out, I told her, you're number eight, and yes, I will get away with it. She didn't breathe again. It's especially hard for Melissa to process some of her seemingly happy memories now. Even something as harmless as watching television together. Growing up with my dad, something that we used to do together is we used to watch true crime shows. Even when I was like a young girl, I would I remember him sitting on the brown velvet couch and I would crawl up on his lap and then because he was so tall, I would actually crawl up on the back of the couch and sit on his shoulders and we would watch like Unsolved Mysteries. I remember that was seemed to be our favorite show. And I would always be terrified at the end of the program as a young girl thinking, oh my gosh, there's there's a million ways I could be abducted. <laughs> and like just terrified, absolutely terrified. As you're sitting on the Yeah, as I'm sitting on the shoulders of my father, thinking, I hope something like that never happens to me. I hope that I know how to keep myself safe. And I think that's partially why I watched these programs as I was looking for ways of like, what did the victim do that could have saved her life? I was analyzing this. And ironically, I think my father was analyzing how to get away with murder. And what tools did the detectives have? It is eerie to me to see the ti- my timeline of events and my father's timeline of his murders. Because there's moments where we were together and then knowing he had just committed a murder and it now was taking me to McDonald's like it was nothing. How was he able to do that? Soon after my parents' divorce, my dad would spend summer vacations with us and During his visitations, he would say things that were were alarming, were odd and bizarre and explicit. Like what? Um, And was it targeted towards you? Yeah, he would target it towards me. I, I didn't see my brother and my sister getting the same treatment. Maybe because I'm the oldest, I was his confidant. It was just peppered throughout our conversations, these things he would say that would were startling. He would say, I know how to commit the most perfect murder. And how old were you? I was a young woman. I was in my early teens. And I remember thinking, this is, this is odd. But it was a, one of the first times I heard him say something like that. He would say, I would cut the buttons off of her jeans so that my fingerprints wouldn't be on them. I would then wear my cycling shoes so that I wouldn't leave a sole print in the dirt. And then I would make sure her belongings were other places. 
From I, The Creation of a Serial Killer, by Jack Olson. I drove to a spot on the downhill side of Highway 14, on the Washington State side of the Columbia Gorge, across the river from where I threw Tanya Bennett's body in Oregon. I carried her over past a guardrail and some garbage sacks and pitched her down a 15-foot embankment. I stared at her crumpled body in the weeds and thought how she'd only lasted five days with me. What a waste. Nineteen ninety-five, the year Keith Jesperson was arrested, was already an incredibly traumatic one for Melissa for a variety of reasons. To get further insight into what she was going through, we traveled to meet with her high school boyfriend, Nick. We're close to Shadel. So this is where I went to high school in um, 1995 when I heard the news about my dad. I was going to this school. And I was dating a guy named Nick. He was actually my first boyfriend. He, um, when I started my freshman year here, he was in my English class. And he was just actually kind of similar to my dad in the sense that he was a jokester. He was funny. Everybody laughed. He was charismatic. He just seemed to have an edge and like I thought that he was a misunderstood person. I was out to prove that people didn't get him right. And my friends and everybody said that he's bad news, but... Why? Why? What was his reputation? He had been arrested. I had heard rumors about drug deals. He had a pager. He had money all the time, cash all the time. He had a money clip with lots of $100 bills. I found that appealing. He asked me to dance that fall. And before I knew it, he just became a part of my life, you know, and I got pregnant. I got pregnant my freshman year. Something was off with my body, and I could just tell something was up. And so I got a pregnancy test, and I went into the bathroom stall here at Shadle right here. It was after classes, and the pregnancy test turned positive. And I was alone and thinking, holy shit, like, what do I do? How did he react to finding out you were pregnant? Not well, not well at all. He didn't handle it well. I mean, like, he's a teenage boy too, so like, I'll give him that, but I didn't handle it well either. Um, I was in panic mode at that point. Once I found I was pregnant, I, I was terrified. I had no idea what to do. I couldn't tell my mom. I felt like if I told my mom, she would think I was a whore. And so right after I found out that I was pregnant is when the news hit about my dad. With her mother and siblings living in poverty, Melissa found herself once again back in her grandmother's basement, young and scared and having to face a really difficult choice. You only have believe it's 12 weeks and every week that would pass it was just like getting closer to that deadline and and the pressure is building but also at the same time while I was going through that I was learning about my dad and his crimes and now we're living in the basement of my grandmother's house that's where Nick actually became a really critical part in my life because he had a car he would actually come to the north side of town and come pick me up and take me to school He made it so much more convenient to get to school. 
was in my relationship with him, it was a very dysfunctional relationship. It was extreme highs and lows. And when things were good, they were good. When things were bad, they were extremely bad, physical. And um, he was very possessive of me. He would hold my, when we would walk around high school, he would hold my belt loop. I can just, like, he always had his hands on me. He was always claiming me with his space. And um, we were constantly together. I never had a break. It was a very codependent, abusive relationship, I would say. From I, The Creation of a Serial Killer by Jack Olson. I went back to my truck and rehearsed the lies I planned to tell when I was arrested. I took myself back to when I killed Tanya and tried to figure out what made me cross the line into murder. Was it the things I read about in the detective magazines? Arson? Animal abuse? Did I kill to make up for a wasted life? For my own fuck-ups? Was it dad's fault? My brother's? My mother's? It was too easy to blame the rest of the family. Maybe I was just a no-good son of a bitch that got off on killing women. Maybe it was my nature. I was living a nightmare. And it became my only option in my mind when I came home one day, saw my sleeping bag on the cot, and thought, a crib does not fit here. Next to a, a cot? I just couldn't see it. And that's when the choice was made for me. I don't see how a, a baby bed could be right there. And I couldn't bear the thought of being financially dependent on Nick or welfare like my mom was. So I felt like the only option for me to break out of this poverty was to not, not have the baby. If anybody says 1995, some people will think O.J. Simpson. Some people will think, you know, Menendez Brothers or something like that. I think of the time I was in that dark bathroom stall seeing I was pregnant and the news hitting of my dad and losing everything in my life. I really thought Everything was against me. Rothy's are the everyday flats for life on the go. They're stylish, comfortable, and go with everything from yoga pants to dresses and skirts. They've quickly become a most-loved, gotta-have-them brand, thanks to their wide range of colors and patterns, with new ones launching constantly. And there's zero break-in period. Since Rothy's are crafted using 3D knitting techniques and hand assembly, their seamless design means right-out-of-the-box comfort. Best of all, they're made from recycled plastic water bottles. That's right. Over 25 million water bottles have been diverted from landfills to make these gorgeous and sustainable shoes. Another major bonus? They're fully machine washable, so your pair will be fresh and ready every laundry day. Plus, Rothy's always come with free shipping and free returns and exchanges. There's no risk and no reason not to try. You'll quickly discover why BuzzFeed called them their forever shoes. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com iHeart. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash iHeart today. As Melissa began to put the pieces of her past back together, after more than 20 years, she decided to visit Nick. Maybe to confront him, maybe for closure. It was hard to tell. Maybe 
just to remember. How far away from the house? Uh, we're just about a minute away. Oh, God. Okay. I just haven't seen him for at least 20 years. I'm so nervous. Your destination is on the left. Oh, right now? Right there. Oh, God. Well, it's a cute house. Oh, there he is on the porch. Oh, my God. He sees us. Okay. He's dressed nice, too. <sighs> okay. Hey, Nick. How are you? Long time no see. <laughs> How's it going? You look the same. You do as well. <laughs> Good to see ya. <laughs> so, thanks for agreeing. Yeah. Up. Yeah, come on in. All right, thanks. So, is this your place? Yeah, welcome. Melissa didn't think that Nick would sit down and meet with her. And when I called him and reached out, he immediately responded with such positivity. The first thing you thought of when you walked through the door was it was so bright and cheerful and didn't look like a bachelor pad at all. The house was spotless, almost as if it were staged for a real estate for photo. Um, I've got lots of spare room because I'm hoping to get my, my kids coming soon. Do you have kids? Yes. I'm working on it. Working on getting them here. There was something very tidy and cheerful about the house and something very sad, too, because you could feel the absence of his kids. It's like he had built this house for his children to enjoy, and they weren't there. So, uh, do they live, like, in another state or something? No, they're with their mom right now, and uh, it's a long story. <laughs> I was married for seven years, have four kids, and um, all I want is my my weekends, and I just want the kids to know that I've been trying and that I never stopped and I've, I've never given up, and whatever their mom says to them, they're gonna know something else someday, too. And that's about all I wanna say about it right now, because sure. it's, it's a mess. Sure, but, sorry about that. Oh, it's okay, and life, mm -hmm. life happens, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then I got one more spot in the back here. At the end of the tour, we settled down at this impeccably clean dining room table to talk about his past with Melissa. Like, I remember it's a little blurry. Me, me too on some of that. Just like, what, what do you remember from, maybe just, maybe you could just tell me what you remember of that time frame and then. Well, I remember one day you just coming out and telling me that there was something about your dad you wanted to tell me and you weren't sure if, if the information was true or what to believe and you told me what you knew. It was... Shocking to me, but I didn't know what to say or what to do to help you. At so. the time, it was one murder. It was Julie Winningham. I didn't even know her name yet. And we went to the library. We did. Several times. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we would look up the articles. And I remember you had said you weren't sure what to believe, and it was shocking. And you also had heard that after he was arrested, he had wrote a letter to his family that had stuff in it that... You didn't get to know what was in it, but you heard that he had he had made a lot of uh, statements that would have, would be admissions, and I didn't know what to think either. Yeah, we were just young. I was fifteen. How old were you? Sixteen? Fifteen as well. They're both same, same age. age. I remember just being stunned and not sure what to believe. Well, I just I trusted you, and 
I didn't feel judgment from you about it at all. Well, I remember one paper in particular, there was a statement from the son of Julie Winningham, the victim, that was towards the end, towards the trial, and that was pretty devastating where he, he talked about, obviously he's torn up and devastated, rightfully so, and wanted my dad to be killed. Like he wanted him dead. And I remember thinking like, this is really hard at the time, you know, it was a transition. Like I still loved my dad. I was trying to figure out how to reconcile my mind, these crimes. And then also wanted to not believe it. And then reading that was hard. So that's what I remember, just as you said it. And it was hard to help you in any way other than just kind of be your friend to listen and be there if I could. You didn't want to believe it. I remember that out of all of the talking that we did, most of it, you you didn't want it to be true. Mm -hmm. Do you remember meeting him? Yes, once. Uh, he was a real nice guy, um, just calm, and, and uh, there was nothing nothing abnormal at all about him. And I, I didn't did realize... Did he intimidate you? Because you were my boyfriend at the time. No. Or was he just like... Nobody pulled me into the kitchen and asked me, you know, how I felt about you. And Oh, really? Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I told him that, uh, that I cared about you a lot and you were really cool. And uh, I just told him that it was nice to meet him and I thanked him and I tried to keep it. Cool. Yeah, because, you know, I was nervous. You know, I've, I've never met him before, but he didn't intimidate me at all. He didn't scare me in any way. I didn't feel any... I, why would I have? From the Oregonian, March 29, 1995, by John Painter, Jr. A long-haul trucker told a Clark County Sheriff's Office detective by phone that he strangled Julianne Winningham, 41, while raping her in the sleeper cab of his rig after gagging her with duct tape. During the autopsy, smoke-like stains were found on parts of her body, suggesting the corpse had been hauled around before being dumped. Keith H. Jesperson, 40, made his admission Friday to Detective Rick Buckner in a telephone conversation. In an earlier phone message to Buckner on Thursday, Jesperson, who is 6 feet 6 inches tall and weighs 250 pounds, said he'd, quote, tried to kill himself a couple of times. And it hasn't worked. Not enough pills in the damn country. Here at KiwiCo, we design and deliver hands-on projects for kids, the next generation of innovators. I started KiwiCo because I wanted my kids to see themselves as creative problem solvers and makers. And as a parent, I know it can be tough to come up with ways to foster creativity and learning and encourage new discoveries. KiwiCo delivers super cool hands-on projects for kids every month. Projects like science experiments, engineering challenges, and art and design techniques that make learning seriously fun and engaging. Each one is designed by experts and tested by kids. We offer seven different lines for kids, ranging from baby through teen, so there's a perfect one for every kid in your life. With KiwiCo, your child is empowered to not just make a project, but to make a difference. To learn more, go to KiwiCo.com iHeart and you can receive your first crate for free. Again, that's kiwico.com slash iHeart.
While Melissa has very strong recollections about what transpired between her and Nick, Nick's memories are much more fond and kinder. What becomes clear is that they went through a very difficult situation as two young teenagers, and it's still hard as adults. Something that I haven't really talked about a lot, though, is that we got pregnant. Do you remember that? Yes. And I haven't talked to anybody about that. I tried not to think about it then, and it came back years later. What do you mean? I... I had a lot of emotions that came from it, and it was when I had children later. Mm-hmm. That's when things came back, and uh, that's when I started thinking about it again. Because um, I would get uh, too much emotions to think about it, so I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I probably should have, now looking back on it, I wish I would have dealt with it better and maybe talk to you more about our options and I don't know I I, think like it I have no blame like we're we're young kids yeah is there a physical side to your relationship there was a couple incidents do you remember uh what do you mean like it was we were we had kind of a, a violent relationship a little bit there were some aspects that were were not healthy Probably arguing more than we should in, uh, about certain things, not knowing how to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember we had some some heated discussions about what we, you know, what we wanted to do, um, and how 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 we how we were gonna move forward. Mm-hmm. I do remember that. Yeah. Do you think this was out of fear? Yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. You could tell that there was a pain, a hesitation, when Nick spoke about his own emotions regarding Melissa's pregnancy. And it seemed like it was something that deeply bothered him, even now. Did you follow her father's case at all over the years? Do you remember? No, I didn't. only, Only because I was dealing with my own emotions about stuff with with her and I then at that time I hadn't processed all the way yet anyways the last time I really thought about you the mostly was when I was first married and had had my first kid and I was talking to my wife about you yeah no I got it I got it I won't forget those those times um it's gonna be with me forever of course it was a it was an impact on my life too yeah and like I told you, I cared about you. So <laughs> you were one that, uh, one that got away for me. From I, The Making of a Serial Killer by Jack Olson. My 14-year-old son Jason and my 15-year-old daughter Melissa visited me through glass. And it only made things worse. The phone connection was bad and the guards rushed me away before we really started talking. I cried as they led me off. I felt sorry that my kids had to see me this way. I couldn't even tell them I loved them. I had a feeling I wouldn't see them again. After we left, we spoke a bit about what it was like for Melissa to see Nick again and what she took away from meeting with him. 
I could tell he didn't want to talk about that. You know, you always tell me hurt people hurt. And, and I'm starting to see maybe where his hurt came from. You know, I want, I want the best for everybody. I want people to be, I want to think that people could be reformed. I want to think that good things can happen to people and that there is redemption, there are changes, there are like, you know, I, I want to believe in that. And if it's possible, then I hope he gets that. From the Salt Lake City Tribune, August 21st, 1995. When Julie smiled, it was like sunshine came out of her mouth. She just loved everybody and everything, her sister Joni says in an interview. Trucking was her way of life, and she wanted to die on the road. But not like this. Not to be killed by some monster. With all the evidence against me, it looks like I'm truly a black sheep, his March 24th letter reads. I'm sure they will kill me for this. I'm sorry that I turned out this way, he scrawled. I've been a killer for five years and have killed eight people, assaulted more. I guess I haven't learned anything. I can see a spark of belief. I pray it to be a beautiful thing. When I found out I was pregnant and all that was happening and I decided I was going to have an abortion, I told myself this is going to be a second chance in life. I'm going to turn my life around and everything's going to be very intentional. I'm going to come up with a plan. And I promised myself I was going to graduate high school, which I was the first in my family to graduate, and I was going to go to college. And I was going to get an education so that I would never have to live like this ever again and never be dependent upon a man ever again. And... I told myself I was going to start over with my life. You, so your dad's in prison at the time? Yeah, he's at prison. Because I didn't have anybody to talk to, and I didn't want to tell my mom. I wrote him a letter, and I said, um, I vented out like all of my anger about what he did to our family and to the victims' families and how much he's hurt everybody. And that, like about my sorrow, I explained how alone I felt in my sorrow. I remember the letter being tear-soaked. I sobbed and released everything that happened to me. I told them I was in an abusive relationship, that I got pregnant, that I made the difficult choice during the time of his incarceration to have an abortion. My biggest fear is that I can be like my father. I look like my father. Every night... In the woods there I wonder about DNA Sits alone some fighter I know I'm not capable of murder I know that I could never cross that line And he screams my name And so I was surprised a couple months later I got a letter from my dad back in response And the sound peels out And when I open up the letter 
First he um, he mocks me for feeling sorry for myself. Like the, that's the first part of the letter. It's just like I'm having a pity party. And then the second part of the letter, he said, you deserve to be in prison with me. You're a killer just like me. Happy Face is a production of How Stuff Works. Executive producers are Melissa Moore, Lauren Bright Pacheco, Mangesha Tigater, and Will Pearson. Supervising producer is Noel Brown. Music by Claire Campbell, Paige Campbell, and Hope for a Golden Summer. Story editor is Matt Riddle. Audio editing by Chandler Mays and Noel Brown. Assistant editor is Taylor Chacoin. In the 1850s, a Parisian bookseller named Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville made a breakthrough for humankind. Decades before Edison's phonograph or Alexander Graham Bell's first telephone call, Scott invented the world's first audio recorder. But the phonautograph, as he dubbed the device, had a catch. It could record, but not play back. This recording of Scott singing Au Claire de la Lune would not be heard by anyone until 2008. What else is out there that was never expected to be heard again? Well, lots. What did he say? Why, why? Uncle Jack's nifty teeth. Who makes the cooling lemonade? And he raised his hand in uh, the most ingrained. Listen to Ephemeral now on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And learn more at ephemeral.show. It was a writing camp at a house in the Hamptons for Beyonce. She's walking around with her baby, walking from room to room, just listening to what we were working on. And I remember Pharrell showed up at the front door. He had like a CD full of beats. Um, everybody was slinging beats at her. And I remember I kept getting to the end of the course going, what the hell goes here? Like, there's, it needs another section. Like the, the anthem stadium, like everybody screams it. I recorded it into my phone when I was running. Like I'm sitting here panting and into the phone. And then that was that was it. And she was like, Congrats, you have you have Beyonce's first single. I was like, what a what an interesting day that was. I'm Dave Stewart, songwriter, producer, co-founder of Eurythmics, and co-creator and executive producer of Songland, a show all about the intimate and mysterious art of songwriting. Join us for Songland's podcast on iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.